0: Oh, good evening. It's a, a wonderful privilege to, to be here once again. It has been a long time, um, but it's a great joy to be here. And I do bring greetings from Heritage in uh, Johannesburg. And uh, we are rejoicing with you over uh, developments here, constituting as a church uh, the founding members. Maybe one day you'll have your name on a building somewhere. I don't know. Uh, but your name is written in the book of life, so that's 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 much, much better um, we we uh, uh we're also excited to to um see growth and the good reports from Rian and just see more and more people involved and It's fantastic to see Kanu up here. Never thought I would see that but, <laughs> uh, That's wonderful. Um, uh, it's always difficult. To know what to preach when you when you visit another church but i'm preaching through 2 corinthians at the moment and so uh sorry for you that's what you're going to get uh so please turn to 2 corinthians chapter 11. i was preaching in clarkstorp this morning and uh, my follower was there so i thought i won't preach the same sermon shame uh, to sit through it twice uh, 2 corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. I'm not going to read through the text now, it's a, it's a longish passage, but we, we will go through all the verses, um, so do keep it in front of you. So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I wonder how many of you have heard of, the, of Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, maybe, maybe you saw, the, I think there's a recent movie, I think it's called Stockholm, uh, but it's based on, on, on uh, the events which caused the the designating of this this syndrome. Uh, It occurred in in Stockholm where two men uh, set out to rob a bank and uh, while they were inside, the alarm went off and the police came and they were trapped inside and they had four hostages and uh, this this, uh, whole event lasted six days. Now, that's not particularly unique in and of itself what was unique that, that uh, resulted in this whole syndrome being, being uh, designated was that the people who were hostages uh, began to care deeply for their captors. Uh, they, even even uh, after they were released, they refused to testify against their captors and they even tried to raise funds so that they could hire good lawyers too, to get these men released. Uh, the, just to give you an example of, of what it was like, even when threatened with physical harm, the hostages still saw compassion in their abductors. After Olsen threatened to, sh- to shoot Safstrom in the leg, to shake up the police, the hostage recounted to the New Yorker, to the newspaper, how kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg he would shoot. Okay? Uh, and so uh, psychologists and mental health experts assigned the term Stockholm Syndrome to the condition that occurs when hostages develop an emotional or psychological connection to the people who held them in captivity. Uh, now you might say, well, what on earth has that got to do with this sermon? Uh, well the church in Corinth was in the same situation. Uh, long before 1973, this phenomena was taking place in Corinth. And it continues to take place throughout the world and unfortunately in many churches in the world. In churches where abusive, narcissistic, domineering uh, leaders... Uh, oppress the congregation, and then their congregation refuses to get rid of them and actually starts to to like them. It happened in Corinth. Uh, Just to give you some of the background, the church in Corinth was a church that Paul planted, a church that he loved. He spent 18 months there, which was longer than he normally spent at the churches that he planted. Uh, It was a, a A metropolis, it was a bustling city, it was an exciting city to be a part of, there were um, all these entrepreneurs, self-made men, it wasn't one of the traditional cities in the Roman Empire, it was a newish city, Uh, it was uh, full of sexual immorality, Uh, it it had uh, many pagan temples all over the place, and it was into this milieu, into this setting, that Paul plants a church. And uh, unfortunately, as you, you and I, I hope you know this, when the Lord saves you, unfortunately, you don't suddenly stop sinning, and you're not suddenly perfect. We all come into, into the Christian faith with our experiences, our, our, our cultural norms, good and bad. Uh, we come with the, with the culturally acceptable sins and so people were coming out of Corinth into the church. They, they thought that sexual sin was just an appetite. They didn't see it as sin. They thought it's just like eating food. You know, you get hungry, you have a sex drive, you have a hunger drive. It's the same type of thing. And Paul had to teach them on, on these things. Uh, they, it was a really a bad church. It's quite remarkable. I think if any of those things were going on in a church today, we would say that is not a church. Uh, <laughs> Yet it was a church. People were even getting drunk at communion. Can you imagine that? Um, And yet Paul still... Anyway, that's an argument to say they used real wine, anyway, by the way. Uh, (laughs) uh, But Paul still saw them as a true church, and he loved them. It's incredible, his love for this church, because what happened is, later on, when, when he had left the church... These false apostles crept into the church and turned the church against Paul. They accused Paul of, uh, of being a thief. They accused him of being a liar. They attacked his eloquence. They said he's a bad preacher. Uh, he wasn't a, a sophist. He wasn't a, uh, an eloquent rhetorician. They were looking for someone who could just sound impressive. Uh, they also said he was ugly. They said his bodily presence was contemptible. Okay? Obviously, they were very smooth and sophisticated. They also said, he suffers. He can't be an apostle. He can't be a man of God because look how much this guy suffers. you know, you you're telling me this is the apostle to the Gentiles chosen by Jesus Christ. Look at his life. It's a nightmare. Look at his body. Look how ugly he is. Look what a failure his life is all the problems he has, he can't be a man of God. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians, which is a really fascinating and unique epistle, it's not like any of the other epistles in the Bible, because it's, a, it's very autobiographical. Uh, maybe as a young Christian, I remember reading some of Paul's letters and I used to think, so this guy is maybe a bit arrogant. I remember that as a young Christian. I, you know, he sort of came across like that to me. Uh, As I grew, though, and especially through studying 2 Corinthians, you see the exact opposite. You start to see the heart of this man, how much he loved Christ, how much he loved people, how much he loved the churches that he planted. And he put up with so much from these Corinthians. And unfortunately, they were seduced by these false teachers, and they were oppressed by them, as we will see as we go through the text. So look at verse 16. Uh, Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish... But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. If you look down at verse 1, he starts off this section saying, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Uh, So uh, he's saying to the church, please bear with me. I'm going to behave in a foolish way. Um, What Paul is getting at here is that he's going to now talk about himself. He's going to talk about his own experiences, because that's what was impressive to the Corinthians, these false apostles that come in and they, they, Paul tells us, they came with letters of recommendation, they came with their CVs and their qualifications and uh, letters of recommendation saying, these guys are amazing, and uh, the Corinthians were enamored with this and taken in by this, sure, look at this, look at the degrees, look where they studied, these guys are amazing. Where did Paul study? What's so great about Paul? Paul. Uh, You know, he doesn't have a wall full of degrees and diplomas and all of these things. Uh, They were taken in by it. So Paul says, look, I'm going to behave in a foolish way now. Uh, And and we'll see that it's very sophisticated what he actually does. But I think for us, some application is from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 and Uh, 5. Well, the author says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself, And then the next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so uh, there is a time uh, for God's people to respond in a foolish way, to expose the folly of others. And so you can use this in apologetics as well. I know people often use this to say, Okay, uh, let's put Christianity aside Let me take your world view for a moment. There is no God, for example. How do you explain morality? How can you say anything is wrong? Uh, If you say it's a social construct, who says social constructs are right? Uh, If you say it's wrong to hurt people, who says that's wrong? I mean, what if someone enjoys hurting people? Uh, Who says pain is a barometer of anything? Where do you decide all of these things? And so you're showing the foolishness of another person's position by taking that position yourself. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's going to speak as a fool. Uh, If you read through this section, you'll notice he says it over and over again. I'm speaking as a fool. I'm speaking as a fool. I'm speaking as a madman. Verse 17, he says, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Uh, Now he's not saying here that what I'm writing now, you know, this section is not inspired by the Lord. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm, I'm acting now as a non-Christian. I'm playing the fool now. I'm also going to boast according to the flesh. Uh, I'm, he's going to use irony and sarcasm to expose these false apostles, or what he often call, also called super apostles. Verse 19, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. And so here, yeah, Paul uses some sarcasm. Uh, Paul loved to use sarcasm. A lot of people miss it. And uh, that causes confusion. So, uh, um, but in 1 Corinthians, he uses it. He says, you know, I'm, I'm just really glad you guys are ruling and reigning. It's fantastic. You know, you guys are the king's kids. You're the head and not the tail. You've got it all together. He says, that's funny because us apostles are the off-scouring of the earth. Okay. Uh, he's been sarcastic with him. Do you really think that, you know, we're ruling and reigning right now? Do you think we're, a, we're, we're, the, we're the ones in charge of the world right now? And here he says he's been sarcastic as well. Now, a lot of people, just to say this, a lot of people then say, well, we can use sarcasm. You know, we can, and uh, now I'm not saying you can't, but remember that in this context, in the cultural context, it was a very sophisticated rhetorical device that people understood. People generally don't get sarcasm now. They just get offended. Okay, So be careful. Don't think, you know, they used it in the Old Testament and that. I'm going to also use it. Uh, sometimes we're just using it as a, a cover to be nasty. Okay? So, so be careful. Use the the culture in which you're in. Use the language that, that is helpful to reach people. It was a way that they they spoke. Um, now, what is he saying here? They gladly bear with fools. They open the pulpit to these false teachers. Being wise yourselves. You know, you're so clever, Corinthians. You seem to have it all together. Uh, and not much has changed, isn't it right? Everyone thinks... You know, if you have an opinion, everyone needs to know about it. With social media, it's like, it's, it's like a stream of consciousness. Just If I think something, whatever I think, everyone should know what I'm thinking. Uh, because I'm so clever and I'm so amazing and it would be sad for the world not to know all the amazing things I'm thinking and what I'm saying and what I'm eating. And, uh, and that's the world that we live in. People are suddenly experts on everything. Now this is a parody, don't take it seriously, I just read the headline, it was a sort of a fake newspaper article, so not real, don't worry. But this is the heading, hospital to replace doctors with parents who have done their research on the internet. Okay. <laughs> That's just to get across the idea that we live in this world where everyone thinks they are suddenly an expert on everything. Now am I saying that we should just naively believe the so-called experts all the time? No, not at all. But here's the interesting thing. People think that they're free and independent thinkers, that they don't have to listen to anyone, that they have all the answers. But what actually happens is that you don't become free and independent. You don't become a wise thinker. You start to listen to fools who affirm your prejudices and cultural sins. You become a sycophant of some celebrity, some big shot that, that you get behind. The biblical model is one of humility. A little humility goes a a long way. So Paul says in verse 20, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. This is incredible. This is Stockholm syndrome. You bear it. You take it. These false teachers came in and enslaved this congregation. They devoured them, took advantage of them, took their money from them. Even hitting them in the face. Even physically abusive. And yet they took it. Paul, who loved them, cared for them. He refused even to take a salary from them. They turned against him. They said he's weak. These guys are strong. These guys have it together. Now why does it happen? Why are there so many bullies in pulpits? Why are there so many narcissists in ministry? People want to want to lead others. People want to oppress others. People want power and status. But why do other people follow them? There's an author called Chuck DeGroat, and he's written a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And... Uh, uh, he's done a lot of research on this, and I was listening to a podcast, a uh, podcast I, I appreciate, and he's been interviewed. And the, the interviewer says this, asked Chuck DeGrode, he says, if we could step into that question of why does the believing community, again, not to say that it's unique to the believing community, you see a lot of this in the corporate world, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs that are, are, everyone looks up to, you know, the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musks of the world, they're abusive people. You can go and read. They're not nice people. The way they would shout at people and fire people at the drop of a hat, they're not nice people. And yet we say, well, they get things done. And then we think, well, that's okay for Christians to behave like that. And we bring it into the church. And there's many testimonies like that. Well, people were being saved. Yes, I got shouted at in the elders' meeting. Yes, I got belittled and mocked. Yes, they were cursing and swearing and behaving like animals. But, you know, people were being baptized. Why does it happen? What is it in the community of God that seems to be drawn into structures that seem to align itself with the presence of narcissism? So, this is his answer. So, remember, this is just a transcript, so it's not very eloquent. Uh, he says this it feels like there's a kind of con- a contemporary, maybe psychological response to that, or a kind of theological response. I mean, when I think about this, this is the age-old question of belonging, to be freed from longing. Adam and Eve in the garden and a serpent slithers up to them and says, surely God hasn't told you not to eat of that tree. And the grasping for the fruit becomes our first moment of, I've got to control this. I've got to take this into my own hands. And that's the story from there on out. You think about when Moses went up the mountain, the people of God are restless, waiting. They can't wait any longer, and so they form the golden calf. Later on, they demand a king, and they're not satisfied with God as their king. So this is the story over and over and over and over again. This, this wanting to control, to be uh, a part of something that seems to be moving somewhere, the promise of of more. I don't know if you know this, but... the the story of the golden calf. Remember Aaron and Moses? Moses goes up there. Uh, you know, we think, well, it's pretty obvious it's idolatry. But do you know what they call those golden calves? The Lord. They said, this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And Lord there is in capitals. It's God's covenant name. They actually sanctified their idolatry. They weren't denying that the Lord had delivered them, but they had changed what God was truly like, and they disobeyed God. He then goes on to say that he likes the work of this author called Gerald Post. He's written books on everyone, from terrorists to Bill Clinton to Donald Trump. He's written about the mirror-hungry narcissist and the ideal hungry follower. Okay, so the, the mirror-hungry narcissist, is the, 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 those are the people that end up leading churches. They love themselves. Uh, remember Narcissus from Narcissus in Greek, Greek mythology. Uh, incredibly beautiful. And uh, he goes, he's thirsty one day, so he, he goes down to get some water at a pond and he sees himself in the water and he falls in love with himself. And uh, it's a fantastic story. And uh, you know, he just can't move away and he, he dies like that. okay, Because um, he, he, he loves himself so much. And so those are people. They don't need other people to affirm them. They are 100% persuaded they are right. They have all the answers. They have this grandiosity, grand ideas uh, that the world needs them. They are people of destiny. They don't care what other people say. They are confident, 100% confident in their view of themselves and their understanding of everything. Everything. But there's another group called the ideal hungry follower, also narcissistic. The ideal hungry follower is sort of like those little fish that attach themselves to larger fish. I'm sure you've seen that on sharks, you know, those little sucker fish, uh, remoras. So they're parasites that live off the, the big fish. He says they're drawn like moths to a, f- to a fire. Something about their insecurity demands that they feed off of another that they see as secure and powerful. You see what's going on here? Because why is it that these narcissistic pastors end up with massive churches? A lot of it's been exposed in America, but it continues here in South Africa. I've seen it on TV. I've seen this one guy, I think his church is in Bloemfontein, uh, but he has campuses all over the place. I've seen him shout at his sound guy because there's some problem, interference in the sermon. Threaten him; you better get this right, or you're out of a job. This is—he's he's busy, you know, talking about the Lord and grace and forgiveness, and then shout it. And it's not as though, well, the next week his church is empty. People stay there; they take the abuse. They take this, this ungodly behavior. And you say, well, they prey on weak people. Yes, certainly. They do prey on weak people, like the Pharisees took advantage of widows and the most vulnerable in society. But many of those churches are full of powerful people, clever people, educated people, leaders of large businesses. Why are they going there? Well, because they're this they're like that little fish. They also have a narcissistic tendency. They're saying, I have answers, but no one listens to me. Everyone should listen to me. Have you ever felt like that? You know, if, if, if I actually spoke in this meeting, people would be amazed. Okay? <laughs> Everyone should really listen to me. But no one listens to you. So what do you do? You join yourself to some powerful celebrity. You see this a lot in Politics. And in the business world and all of these things, but unfortunately in the church as well. And so, why this sermon, Well That Heritage Back Home? Because it's a danger for all of us. It's a danger for people, especially in this world that we live in now, which is full of celebrity pastors, it's a celebrity culture. Uh, politics uh, has been, you know, it's become populist. And that's entered into the church, and so everything that is complex has been reduced to sound bites and tweets, and so people just align themselves with some reductionistic loudmouth. So they think, well, everyone should listen to me, no one listens to me, but this guy people listen to, I will align with this person. I know they're abusive, I know they're, they're nasty, but it's fine. And so the challenge to you is, Uh, I don't you know fortunately I can say these things I'm a visiting past I can say what I like I'm leaving Uh, (laughs) you can moan at Rion Uh, uh, you need to be careful I don't know your social media feeds I don't know what you tweet I don't know any of those things I'm not I'm not really on I have an account because every now and then someone will say you need to see this Uh, and so then I go and see that but I'm not on but I'm saying to you be careful who you are aligning yourself with. Maybe it's that little narcissist in you. You feel, I should be heard. People don't listen to me. I'm going to join myself to this bully. And the same with the Heritage Church here, as it grows by God's grace, that we never allow people like that into leadership. People who are seeking to build their own kingdom. Naming ministries after themselves. It's all about them. It's self-promotion. It's not about the kingdom of God. It's not about the gospel. It's not about making disciples. It's about them. Earlier on in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this amazing passage. I love it. I want to have it made into verse art, wall art, and put on my wall. And this is the heart of ministry. He says, working together with you for your joy working together with you for your joy. Making a disciple, making disciples is about helping everyone to think clearly and biblically so that we are free thinkers in the best sense because our, our mind is shaped and, and protected by the Word of God so that we're not manipulated by some eloquent person, some dynamic person, some charismatic person, the next big fad, tossed to and fro every wind of doctrine. But we think correctly. We're not quick to answer. We're not quick to tweet. We're not impulsive. But we weigh things up carefully. You know, the first person to speak always sounds right. Isn't that what Scripture tells us? So we're careful. We're slow. Slow to anger. God gave us two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Continues to say, uh, it's not just an individual. There's a kind of collective dynamic. Look at us. I've worked with systems that are narcissistic, where there's a collective grandiosity. I worked with a discipleship ministry where it was like we put out the very best discipleship materials in the whole of North America. There's no one that comes close to us. It was a Jesus-following, Jesus-honoring kind of organization saying that we are the best disciples in all the world. Collective grandiosity. A group of people that align themselves around a powerful leader. So there's really an interesting dynamic there. People who follow others in almost a cult-like way because of their own feelings of powerlessness, deficiency, insecurity. I think it speaks to our cultural moment and why so many people who feel disenfranchised in a way gather around a particularly powerful leader. I think it's, this is really insightful. What was going on in Corinth? That's what happened. Their own narcissism, their own pride and insecurity, they accepted these false teachers, these abusive narcissistic teachers who really were just displaying Corinthian culture. They were just putting a Christian veneer on the sins of their culture and they accepted it. And that goes on today, unfortunately. And as he says here, it's not just individuals, churches, organizations do it. This idea, you know, we're, you know, we're actually the best church. We're the best church in Potchefstroom. We're the best church in South Africa. We're the, you know, we have the, the best discipleship material. I'm sure you're a wonderful church, Okay. But if you ever start thinking we're the best church or we're the this or that, or you have some sort of grandiose ideas, stop it. Okay. We're sinners saved by grace. I love, I love being in ministry. Uh, there's a book that I read a while ago, Simon Sinek. He wrote a book you know, on why, why, why businesses exist. And so, one of the fundamental things if you're an entrepreneur is why do we exist? And I love it because I don't need to spend a lot of time. Why am I a pastor? Why does the church exist? We exist to make disciples, to glorify God by making disciples. It's fantastic. Every morning I wake up, I know what I have to do. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Teaching God's word, baptizing people. It's simple. We seek to do that the best that we can. There's ways we can improve. We have blind spots, all of those things, but... Uh, Don't be full of pride, grandiose ideas. Don't be like the Corinthians. Paul says in verse 21, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Notice the irony there. You know, I'm sorry, we I'm sorry I wasn't I wasn't willing to hit you in the face. You know, I'm sorry I didn't oppress you. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. There you see it again. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Uh, they were obviously boasting about their ethnic pedigree. Uh, you know, that they're real Hebrews and Israelites, all of these things. And Paul says, well, so am I. And then, here's the real issue, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? So here's the real issue. It's a, it's a sort of technical phrase for an apostle. They were saying Paul is not really an apostle. He's not really a servant of Christ. They are the true servants of Christ. Now look at what Paul says. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Okay? Speaking as a fool, I'm speaking as a madman. Literally out of my mind. Because okay? he doesn't want to do this. And then look at how he defends himself. With far greater labors. So what he does now is brilliant. He undermines their boasting, the boasting of these false teachers. Uh, He turns their boasting on its head. He subverts the Corinthians' obsession with the external, with prestige, with luxury, with status and comfort. He begins to boast, but he doesn't boast in the things people normally boast about. He begins by boasting in his labors, And the word labor here is the word that is used for physical labor. Manual labor. Now, if you know anything about the Greek world and Greek philosophy, you would know that was frowned upon. The ideal, the the Greek philosophers uh, studied or or taught us this idea of eudaimonia, the good life. How do you achieve the good life? And they said, well, the first thing is you need to be free from Physical work. You want to have a really good life, you need to be free from physical work. That's for other people. That's for slaves to do. Remember when Paul comes to Athens in Acts chapter 17, it, the scripture tells us that people just sat around doing nothing except listening and talking. That was the ideal. You've arrived when you can just sit around and do nothing and just philosophize. <laughs> and Paul begins to say, you know why I'm so great? I work with my hands. You know why I'm a great apostle? Because I work with my hands. A shameful thing in that culture. And I want to say, unfortunately, it's becoming a shameful thing in South Africa. People look down on physical labor. Everyone wants the white collar job. People look down on those who work with their hands. It's devilish. God the Father creates Us creates mankind by getting his hands dirty, isn't that right? Out of the dirt, he made us. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, did he get a white-collar job? I'm not saying it's wrong to have a white-collar job. I'll get to the point just now. Uh, He worked with his hands, didn't he? He labored with his hands. It is an honorable thing. What does Paul say? Stop stealing and work with your hands so you have something to give to others. If you, if you think, you know, well, I, I come to church, but you know, I, my, my goal is to go into ministry. So that's not, you know, I don't do the physical stuff because, you know, I just pray and study the Bible. That's what I do. Well, I hope you never go into ministry, okay? If it's, a, if it's beneath you to do physical labor... It's beneath you to pack chairs. It's fortunate this place you don't need to move chairs around. (laughs) You can't move chairs. But I'm sure there's other work. There's always work to be done. Paul says, I work with my hands. Remember, he was a tent maker. That's how he subsidized his income. He traveled around. He wasn't some uh, academic in an ivory tower who just philosophized and never dealt with people in reality, never got his hands dirty. No, he says, I I labour, I work hard. When you go to Proverbs thirty-one, remember that idealised picture of the godly woman. Uh, you go and read that. What is the, the main feature that you'll find is that she works hard. Okay. So men, idealise. You're looking for a, a wife. The feature you should be looking for: does she work? Is she willing to work hard? Does she, is she a hard worker? So often it's just obsession with the externals but god's people are called to imitate god we're to be hard workers men and women not afraid of getting our hands dirty not afraid of doing physical labor if you need to go and do stuff in the church or maybe there's you know an elderly widow who needs help to go and paint her place to do all of those things if you think oh that's beneath me you know i just i'm just into spiritual things well you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> so you see what Paul is doing here. He's going to turn this thing on its head. They boasted in, you know, they would have boasted that they don't work. They're the ideal philosophers. You know, they're they're very neat and smart. They have their three-piece suit. They're very sophisticated. They have their teeth whitened. They uh, have all of these things. They've got it together. Paul comes along and says, "Hey, I work more than anyone else." Then he says. Far more imprisonments. I'm in jail more. Okay, (laughs) Would you hire that pastor? Uh, Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews. The 40 lashes less one. Now we're rushing over this. But spend some time meditating on this. Just think of this poor man's body. He's lost count of how many times he's been beaten. Often near death. Forty lashes less one, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And you know, this is written before, before Acts, the story in Acts is completed. So some of those sufferings and some of those experiences are not even yet included. In fact, uh, he, he goes on to say, three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day I was adrift at sea. That's before the shipwrecking in Acts. If I, if I was around Paul, I would never travel with that guy. Okay. Like it just goes wrong for this guy. Uh, it's four times the boat you're on is shipwrecked. What are the chances? Uh, a night and a day in the sea. What is he boasting in? I suffer. Things go wrong in my life. I get beaten up. Shameful things in the culture. The exact opposite of what the Corinthians wanted. And what we all want, isn't that right? Don't you? We all want to be free from, from pain. We want comfort. That's the idol that we want. We want comfort. We want everything to run smoothly. Uh, I mean, it is just, you know, as uh, praying for those in Afghanistan, it's like, what's going to happen to them? Uh, they're going to be tortured. I mean, it's horrific. You know the horrific things that are done. It's not even, you can't even, it's, it's, it's unspeakable. But that's what's going to happen to them. But what a reward they will receive. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his his saints. We don't want that. I don't want that. And I'm not saying we must desire it. I'm saying that suffering does not mean God is against you or or you're out of the will of God. Paul says it's the opposite. Paul is saying, these are the things that I suffer, which proves I'm an apostle. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, its the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It's not your best life now. And that's what the Bible teaches. This isn't your best life now. The life to come, the life hereafter is your best life. He's in trouble with everyone, isn't that right? Danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from false brothers. It's one of the ways that you can sort of tell whether you're on the right track is if you're in trouble with everyone. Okay? <laughs> if you're just getting flack from one side, you know, the liberals hate me or the conservatives hate me. Well, you're probably wrong. If they're both hating you, well done. Okay, uh, it's it, You'll see in Scripture that Paul gets into trouble from, from, from uh, legalistic people and he gets into trouble from people who are antinomian, anti-law, licentious people. Don't tie yourself to one philosophy or one side because it's probably wrong. There's elements of truth in most world views that gain traction in this world, and Christianity is not is not one of them. We're not left-wing or right-wing or capitalist or socialist or this or that or the next thing. We are, as the Church Father said, we are a third race, either Jew nor Gentile. We are Christian. Christianity transcends these things. We are above them. We have a different way the scriptures are our way. We belong to God. So don't get caught up and sidetracked by all of these things. Now, I just want to say, I don't understand how anyone can preach the prosperity gospel with a straight face and read this passage. How on earth can you take the man who, after the Lord Jesus Christ, probably the greatest human being who's ever lived, Okay, the greatest faith, the greatest apostle and this is his life if you say if you have lots of faith good you know only good things will happen to you it gives the lie to that why why is it like this well you see paul followed his savior didn't he he followed the lord jesus christ a suffering savior Verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. All the churches he planted, he was, he was stressing about them. I thought stress was a sin. No, not always. Okay. <laughs> there is a good stress. There is a good anxiety that you should have. What does it mean to bear other people's burdens? It means you can't sleep at night because of what they're going through. That's good. Paul, earlier on, you can go and read the first few chapters, that's how he felt about the Corinthians. He even stopped a ministry that the Lord had opened the doors. It was prospering. He says, I can't carry on here because I'm worried about my spiritual children in Corinth. What did you think of a parent who just slept soundly while their child is suffering? You wouldn't say, oh, that's fantastic. You have such peace in the Lord. You're such an example to us no <laughs> you wouldn't say well, i hope you wouldn't say that that's not an example that's that's callousness there is a good stress there is a good anxiety when you see your brothers and sisters behaving in a sinful way when you see people drifting from the lord you should be anxious there's a spiritual father worrying about the condition of the churches that he planted look at verse 29 who is weak and i am not weak who is made to fall and i am not indignant it's affected by what happens to his children. If you have a Christianity that is never affected, it's probably because you're not involved in anyone's life. You're not reaching out. You're not making disciples. You're not walking a road with anyone. It's easier just to withdraw. I'm, I know people come to see me, and I'm already dreading they're going to tell me some bad news, which is going to ruin my day. Can I run away? I could run away, I guess. But... The, We're not called to do that. We're called to bear one another's burdens. It's not easy. But it's only for a short period of time, and that's what Christ did for us. Took our burdens, took our shame, took our sin. Verse 30 If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You see how he's just decimated the Corinthian worldview? It's in weakness not in worldly strength or worldly wisdom. Listen to what one commentator, Ralph Martin, says. Having taken up his assumed position of foolishly boasting, Paul goes on to give a record of his past life of service for Christ's sake and the gospel. The true tests of apostleship he verse, are not in loud claims and unsupported pretensions. The acid test is found in the appellant's record of suffering service, and sympathy with others for their good. Those are the type of leaders you should be looking for. In this church, and if the Lord moves you somewhere else, to that church that you go to. Suffering, service, and sympathy with others for their good. Not as he dynamic or charismatic or uh, fun or good-looking or whatever it is, cool, uh, but... Is this, do you see this? Suffering, service, sympathy with others for their good. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. That's the language of an oath. He's saying this is the truth. And then he ends, verse 32 and 33, in a very strange way. Uh, At Damascus, the governor and the king Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Isn't that a bit weird. Okay. <laughs> like you can understand the flow, and then he says, I'm not lying, it's an oath. And then he says, you know, when I was in Damascus, the t- king tried to arrest me and they let me down in a basket through the wall. And then he, then he goes on to talk about his, his visions. Okay, what's going on here? Now, if you if you if you've grown up in a Christian home or At some study, you probably know that Paul was converted on the way to Damascus. You can read that in the book of Acts. And so he's converted there. He's blinded. He goes into Damascus and Ananias comes to pray for him. And uh, the Lord says, you know, I want you to tell him how much he's going to suffer for me. Isn't that great? In your first day in the job. (laughs) You're going to suffer a lot for me, Paul. But I love that the Lord does that. He never lies to us. eh? Uh, It it has been given to you. Uh, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Okay? The gift of faith and the gift of suffering. If you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and die. You, ma- you want to gain life, you must lose life. The Lord never lies about the fact that we will suffer. So, what is going on here? Paul is really ending by saying, I want to give you the paradigmatic example of how weak I am. It's stuck in Paul's mind. Probably because it's so closely linked to his conversion. It's the first experience he has. He's there in Damascus, starts sharing the gospel. The king wants to, wants to get rid of him. And so he, he escapes. In a basket. He's the first basket case. Okay. Uh, he they chasing him. And you think, well, there's going to be power. You know, this is the great apostle. Chosen by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I wonder what sort of power will be manifest here. Quickly, guys, hide me in a basket and lower me down the side of a wall. Isn't that the height of weakness? How pathetic on a human level. And that's what he's saying. It reminds me of of uh, the Gospels. You know, there were quite a few times they tried to kill Jesus. You can go and read that. They tried to. Push him off the end of the cliff. You remember that? Uh, They try to stone him. If you you weren't familiar with the Gospels, you didn't know what was going to happen next, but you had a certain paradigm, you had a certain understanding of Christianity as triumphalistic and power, you might say, Oh, they want to kill Jesus. I wonder what's going to happen now. Let me get some popcorn. This is going to be good. Uh, I wonder what he's going to do. Uh, some, Some power stuff here, open the earth. Swallow them up, fire from heaven, vaporize them. What does he do? The Bible says he escaped. Weakness. Humanly speaking, he escapes. Paul escapes. Now what does that say? It's through weakness. Now it's not moral weakness. So don't take this weakness to be, you know, it's okay to sin. Paul nowhere in that list said, you know, I'm, I just sin a lot and that, I'm just weak. There's nothing to do with sin. Okay, uh, God remembers that we're dust, and if you you're battling with sin, then then speak to someone. There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is hope. But that's not the weakness that we boast in. Okay, it's become trendy to boast how you know I'm just really bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm... and you'll notice though this is the interesting thing you'll notice that. Nobody ever says, well, I'm just a really bad racist. Or I'm just a really bad pedophile. Nobody says that. It's trendy sins that you can confess, that it's cool to confess. I'm just a proud person. Um, I battle with pride and everyone's like, oh, shame, that's terrible. What's going on here? Uh, it, it's, that's, not, that's not turning from sin. That's not, you're just seeking approval from others. Paul never is talking about moral weakness. There's never a license for that. There's never a license for sin. Nor is he talking about intellectual weakness. To say, well, we don't need to think or we don't need to study, we don't need to learn. It's the way God's kingdom works. It does not work through oppression and domination, pomp and ceremony. I was sharing with... with, uh some, some of the people in our, our growth group the other day, that's our midweek meeting. You know what, what defines Christianity is the fruit of the Spirit, eh? Galatians 5. How many are there? I asked the group. Nobody could get it right. I was quite embarrassed. I don't know which church they came from. <laughs> Nine of them. Okay. Go through it. Go read it. How much of that do you see in contemporary Christianity? Love, joy, Peace, gentleness, patience, kindness, self-control. Do you see that? Is that the character of people on social media who claim to be Christian? Gentle, kind, long-suffering, self-control. That's what we're called to be. That's the weakness. It's not the way the world operates. It's that we lose our lives. Not that we become doormats. That's not what I'm talking about. That we never... No, this is... Paul was not a coward... We've seen that already. That's not that type of weakness. But it's laying down our lives. It's not the way the world operates. It's not through threats and abuse and manipulation. It's through serving one another. Jesus is the shepherd king. Remember he says, you call me Lord and it's right because I am Lord. And yet it's this Lord who washed their feet. God's kingdom does not operate the way of the world. We all want to be on the winning team. Obviously, we don't want to look like losers. We don't want to look pathetic. We don't want to look like cowards down a wall in a basket. We'd love to call down fire from heaven. We just like the disciples. We do want that. You can see that who yeah, stopped supporting Barcelona like 2 weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> Messi moves, everyone's a PSG supporter suddenly. Why? We want to be winners. We want to be on that team. We want to be with that celebrity. We want to be with this guy. We want to be seen. But that's not how God's kingdom works. And if you're not prepared to go that, I love there's a word, cruciform, cross-shaped life, to follow in the footsteps of your Savior, if you're not humble enough to accept the gospel that speaks like that, the the Greeks weren't. To the Greeks, the gospel was foolishness. You're telling me that the master of the universe is this bloody, pathetic figure on a cross, naked, spat upon, forsaken. Please, I don't, have, I, don't have, I don't have time for that. I want someone powerful. I want to see displays. I want to see intellectual prowess. I can't follow someone like that. But if you're a Christian, that's the way we're called to go. And if you're not a Christian, I call you to come that way. Because if you lose your life, you will gain it. You will gain eternal life, true joy, true satisfaction in Christ alone. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this incredible passage. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, how he shows us what you are like, Lord Jesus. Uh, he truly followed in your footsteps suffering servant, we pray that you would help us to follow uh, Paul, to imitate him as he imitated you. Uh, We are bombarded from every side. There are so many voices from without and within calling us to to behave in a worldly way, to dominate, to oppress, to manipulate, to lie, to be deceitful, to draw attention to ourselves even through a fake humility, to build our own kingdoms, to associate with abusive people just so we can feel a sense of power, to humiliate others, to become tribal. Lord, please forgive us. Help us to to follow your way, Lord Jesus, to lay down our lives, to lose our lives. It's not about our kingdom, it's about your glory, it's about the good of others. May we become weak, because in that weakness there is strength. You are strong. On the cross, in that moment of seeming humiliation and weakness, you you defeated our greatest enemies. You conquered death, hell, and the grave. And so, Lord, you've called us to go this way. It is your economy not the world's economy. It is your way of doing things. And so please help us. Please keep us. We pray for this church here. Thank you so much for Heritage Parchestrom and the work you're doing here. Uh, please continue to do it and uh, keep all of us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with a... There's, there's no closing hymn. I'll close with a benediction from Revelation chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.